Salute omnes, welcome to the AP Latin Podcast. The goal of this podcast will be to cover the lines from Caesar's De Bello Gallico and Virgil's Aeneid that are found on the AP Latin curriculum. Each two-part episode will cover a selection of lines from Caesar and Virgil. I will present the Latin and English of the text, providing relevant clarification, background, and cultural information that will help put the readings in their proper context. I encourage you to read along with me as you listen to the Latin and to use the English as a way to check your understanding rather than relying on the English for understanding. Each episode will conclude with some essential questions to consider as you process through the meaning of the text. Parati, eamus. AP Latin Podcast, Episode 2B, Aeneid Book 1, Lines 34 through 80. In this episode, you will learn just how far a goddess will go to get revenge, and you will see that Juno doesn't understand irony at all. Wix e conspectu seculae telluris in altum, vela dabant laetet spuma salis aira ruebant, cum juno aeternum servan sub pectora vulnus haec secum, menin kepto de sistera victam, nec pas Italia tu crora vertera regem, quipe vetor fatis, palas nec surora classem argi wat quipsos potuit submergere ponto, Unius ab noxet florias aiacis olei. Ipsa iovis rapidum iaculate nubibus ignem, disiecit que rates evertit quaequora ventis, il expirantem transfixo pectora flamas, turbine corripuit scopuloquin fixit acuto. Ast ego, quae divincedo regina iovisque, et soror, et coniunx, Una cum gente, tot annos bella gero, et quisquam numen unonis adorat, praetere aut suplex aris imponet honorem. Talia, flamato secum dea corde, volutans, nimborin patriam loca feta furentibus austris, aeoliam venit. Hic, vasto rex, aeolis antro, luctantes ventos, tempestantes sonoras, Imperio premit at winklis et carcere frena. Il indignantes magno cum murmure montis circum claustra fremunt, celsa sedet aeolis arce, sceptra tenens molit quanimos et temperat iras. Nifaciat, mariac terras caelumque profundum quipe ferant rapidi secum, verantque per auras, sed, Pater omnipotens peluncis abditit atris, hocmetuens molemquet montes inseper altos, impossuit, regimque dedit qui, voidera certo, et premeret laxas sciret dare iusus abenas. Ad quem tum, juno suplex his vocibus usest. Aeola, namque tibi divum pater at quominum rex, et mulcera dedit fluctus et tolera vento, gens enemica mihi terrenum navigat aequor, ilian italiam portans victosque penates, incute vem ventis submersas quobrue pupes, aut age diversos et disice corpora ponto. Sunt mihi bis septem praestanti corpora nymphae, Quarum quae forma pulcherima deopea. Conubio jungam stabili propriamque dicabo, omnes ut tecum meritis portalibus annos, exigat et pulcra faciat te prole parentem. 
Aeolus haec contra, tuus o regina quid optes, explorare labor, mihi iussa capessera facest. Tu mihi quod cum quoc regni tu sceptra iuemque concilias, tu das epulis acumbere divum, nimborum que facis tempestatum que potentem. Barely out of sight of Sicilian land, they were happily setting sail onto the deep and were plowing the foams of salt with their bronze, when Juno, preserving the eternal wound under her heart, said this with herself, Am I, defeated, to stop from my undertaking, nor be able to turn the king of the Teucrians from Italy? Obviously I am forbidden by the fates. Was Pallas able to burn up the Argive fleet and to submerge the men themselves in the sea on account of the harm and madness of one man, Ajax Oileus? She herself, having hurled the rapid fire of Jove from the clouds, both scattered the ships and upturned the sea with the winds. Him, breathing out flames from his transfixed chest, she snatched up in a whirlwind and impaled on a sharp rock. But I, who proceed as queen of the gods and sister and wife of Jove, with one nation, for so many years, am waging war. And will anyone worship the divine power of Juno after this, or as a suppliant place honor on my altars? The goddess, turning over such things with herself in her inflamed heart, came into the homeland of the clouds, Aeolia, a place teeming with the raging south winds. Here in a vast cave, King Aeolus presses the struggling winds and howling storms with imperium and restrains them in chains and a prison. Those indignant winds, with a great rumble, roar around the enclosure of the mountain. Aeolus sits in his lofty seat, holding a scepter, and he soothes their spirits and tempers their anger. If he did not do this, the rapid winds would surely carry the seas and lands and deep sky with themselves and would sweep them through the air. But the omnipotent father, fearing this, hid them in dark caves and placed a mass in tall mountains over top of them and gave a king by fixed agreement who would know when ordered both to press and to give loose reins. To whom then Juno as a suppliant used these words. Aeolus, for to you the father of gods and king of men has granted both to soothe the waves and to lift them up with wind. A people hated to me sails the Tyrrhenian Sea, carrying Ilium into Italy and conquered Penates. Strike power in the winds and overwhelm the sunken ships or drive them apart and scatter their bodies on the sea. There are for me twice seven nymphs, surpassing in body, who of which the most beautiful in form is Deopea. I will join you in stable marriage, and I will call her your own, so that through all the years for such favors she will live with you, and she will make you a parent of beautiful offspring. Aeolus says this in reply, Your work, O queen, is to explore what you desire. For me it is right to carry out orders. You bring about for me whatever of a kingdom this is. You obtain a scepter and win over Jove for me. You grant me to recline at the feasts of the gods. You make me ruler both of clouds and of storms. In this section, you're going to encounter a lot of poetic literary devices. Many of these devices affect word order or sound and are used to enhance the impact of lines or to paint a visual or auditory picture of what is happening. I'm not going to focus too much on these in this analysis, but I will spend some time looking at another group of literary devices, those that involve word choice or usage. The first of these is metonymy and its little brother, synecdoche. These two literary devices are very similar, but generally metonymy is using one word to suggest another entirely different but related word, 
where synecdoche is using part of an object to refer to the whole object. Both of these devices show up very early in these lines, where spuma salis is a metonymy for waves or the sea, and ira is a synecdoche for ships, referring to the bronze-tipped prows of the Trojan fleet. Another synecdoche occurs later, when Juno uses pupes, sterns, to mean ships. Another literary device that affects word choice is hindiades, where two words are linked by a conjunction instead of modifying one another. In these lines, molem et montes altos is a hindiades meaning massively high mountains. A third literary device that bears mentioning is prolepsis. This device speaks of a future event as though it has already happened. In this case, Juno calls the Trojan ships submersas, this word occurring earlier than is logical in the narrative because the fleet is not yet sunken. But because it is an inevitable event that this will happen, Juno speaks as though it already has. Finally, zugma is a literary device where one verb takes multiple direct objects at the same time, each with a slightly different contextual meaning. Near the end of this passage, Aeolus uses the verb conchilias with three different objects, quadcumque regni, sceptra, and jovem. Conchilias has several possible meanings, and each object takes a different one. So Juno brings about his kingdom, obtains him a scepter, and wins Jove over to view him favorably, all meaning contained within one use of one verb. You are also going to need to get used to a stylistic feature of Virgil and of poetry itself, the use of multiple synonyms. In these lines alone, Virgil uses six different words that refer to or suggest the sea. Altum, Spuma Salis, Ponto, Aequora, Maria, and Fluctus. Where in Caesar's style he generally tends to use a more limited vocabulary, a flumen is a flumen is a flumen to Caesar, but in poetry, anything that vaguely suggests moisture could possibly be the ocean. The variety makes for a more stylized, poetic, and interesting reading, but the diversity of words can pose a bit of a challenge. Turning now to the story itself. After the prologue, the story proper begins in Medias Race, seven years into the Trojans' wanderings after the Trojan War has ended. Books two and three of the Aeneid will fill in the gaps, but at this point, the Trojans have just left Sicily, where Aeneas has buried his father Anchises. The scene opens on Juno being angry, which we will see a lot. In her rant to herself, she mentions Pallas, Minerva, getting to wreck a fleet of ships because of one man. The Ajax mentioned here is different from Ajax Telamon, another Greek fighter in the Trojan War. The episode to which Juno is referring happened during the sack of Troy. Ajax Oleus desecrated one of Minerva's temples and raped Cassandra, priestess of Minerva and daughter to King Priam, the king of Troy. You might recognize Cassandra's name as the woman cursed to always prophesy the truth only to have nobody believe her. Because of such great irreverence, Minerva blasted him with lightning, impaled him on a rock in the ocean, and sank his fleet. Juno, citing this precedent from history, expresses her anger at being so limited that she is unable to do the same, despite her rank in the Pantheon and her relationship with Jupiter. She ends her monologue with a rhetorical question about whether anyone will respect her anymore. Her solution is to visit Aeolus, the king of the winds, and to get him to whip up a storm that will wreck the Trojan fleet. Virgil, in true epic convention, spends a bit of time describing the power of the winds and Aeolus's role as king. 
He also uses several poetic literary devices to enhance the impact and imagery of these lines, including metaphor, hyperbaton, enjambment, alliteration, and assonance. When Juno approaches Aeolus, she makes him an offer. She will marry him to Deopea, the most beautiful of the nymphs in her possession. Juno can do this because she is the goddess of marriage, and the phrasing she uses mirrors the formulaic lines of a Roman wedding ceremony. However, this scene is heavily ironic, because it is exactly this offer to Paris that is one of the main reasons that Juno hates the Trojans in the first place. Yet here she is, offering the most beautiful nymph to Aeolus in exchange for his cooperation. So either Juno learned something of dealing with males from Venus, or she is completely oblivious to the irony. Aeolus agrees, recognizing Juno as the source of his own authority and of his kingdom. As we close out the episode, here are some essential questions to consider. How does Juno's monologue contribute to Virgil's characterization of the goddess? Juno ends her speech with a rhetorical question. What does this question reveal about the nature of people's relationship to and worship of the gods? How do the various literary devices enhance Virgil's description of Aeolus's kingdom? What can you infer about epic values concerning marriage and children from Juno's promise to Aeolus? How is Juno's marriage offer similar to and different from the marriage alliance between Orgatorix and Domnorix in the Caesar section? Gratias ago pro auscultando, valete. <laughs>